0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Hosea chapter 11. This brings us to the end of the middle section in Hosea, this rather long indictment wherein God has been detailing the various causes and provocations that have led to the season of judgment that is now coming upon the people of Israel. I also mentioned back in chapter 9 that there is a section within a section running from chapter 9 verse 10 through to the end of chapter 11 that is built around four distinct metaphors. Israel is compared to grapes in the wilderness, a luxuriant vine, a stubborn heifer, and here in chapter eleven, a beloved child. Here now, the word of the Lord. We'll begin reading at verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Here, God shifts metaphors, but also in a sense returns to a metaphor that was developed in the first three chapters. In the same way that God can be compared to a husband of a whoring wife, so also he may be thought of as a father who adopts children who are not his own. In the original context, then, this clearly is referring to God's relationship with Israel. God took familial responsibility for Israel in the Exodus, and he carried them personally out of bondage and into a land of pleasantness and opportunity. This passage reminds us of what God said to Moses in Exodus 19. He called Moses to himself and said, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, Close quote. So God there compares himself to a daddy eagle. He bore Israel up on eagle's wings and carried his little chick all the way into the promised land. That's the original or most basic meaning of the text. However, if you are a Bible reader, then you know that this statement from Hosea is picked up and applied prophetically to the person of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 2. After the Magi left to return to their homeland, Matthew says, this is Matthew 2, 13 to 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Closed quote. So how does Jesus growing up in Egypt and then leaving there to go to Galilee in any sense fulfill the prophecy of Hosea 11, verse 1. Because Hosea 11, verse 1 isn't even framed as a prophecy. It is framed as a remembrance. The prophet is looking back in Hosea 11, 1, not forward. He has God recalling that he had been as a gentle father to infant Israel in bringing them up out of Egypt. How is that fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus? Now, is this, as some critics claim, an example of how the apostles misappropriated the words and teachings of the Old Testament? I don't think so. Michael Barrett says helpfully here, I suggest that Matthew correctly and astutely recognized the symbolic significance of Hosea's Exodus statement and artfully and justifiably applied it typically or at least analogically to Christ. In other words, Matthew is saying there is something about God's loving deliverance of Israel from Egypt that is analogous to God's loving protection of Christ from Herod, closed quote. I think that's so helpful for us to see not just in terms of this story, but in terms of how we read our Bibles. We have to understand that the Old Testament established patterns and outlines that are fulfilled and realized in the life and death of Jesus Christ. God works in predictable ways, and he is always teaching. So, if we read the Old Testament carefully, it should actually increase our appreciation and understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Thanks be to God. Let's jump back into the text at verse two. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Now, some of the language here is very complicated. I've said before that some of the language in the book of Hosea is considered among the most difficult to translate in all the Old Testament. So there are going to be some slight differences as you move from one translation to another here. But the basic idea is very accessible. Daniel Carroll says, The parent-child metaphor can be visualized either as a reference to God as a father who lifts up and carries the tired or frightened child, or as a picture of a loving mother guiding the little one in its very first steps. In any case, tenderness is the spirit of the verse, closed quote. Let me say that again, because again, despite the the little difficulties here and despite some of the peculiarities, what's right on the surface is beautiful, so I want to make sure you don't miss it. Let me say that again. In any case, tenderness is the spirit of the verse. God has a tender concern for his child Israel. That's what we're supposed to see. He's like a parent to them. And that is what makes their stubborn rebellion all the more offensive and grotesque. There is no reason for it. There's no justification for it. God has been a good father to them. He's been a good parent. And still they have turned against him. And so there has to be punishment. There has to be. And that's what we see next in verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. In verse 5, there's a bit of wordplay. Because they haven't returned to me, they will return to exile, not to Egypt, but to Assyria. Notice then that the people are not in a state of repentance. They haven't turned back to God, despite that they do call out to the Most High, as we see in verse 7. Again, one of the main interests in the book of Hosea is to explain to us, is to illustrate the nature of true repentance. To repent, to turn back to God, is not merely to call on God when you're about to get in trouble. That's what this is. God the Father has decided that Israel, his son, needs a spank and a timeout. And, and just like I remember doing as a little boy, Israel is now saying, I'm sorry, Daddy, I didn't mean to. Okay, but that's not real repentance. That's just being sad that you're about to get a spank. God is a good father. And, and so he presses through the crocodile tears here in order to deliver much-needed correction. But his intention is not to destroy them. He makes that very clear in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Now, scholars debate as to the best way to translate the end of verse 9. So the ESV, as we have just read it, says, I will not come in wrath. Whereas the KJV, for example, has it, I will not enter into the city. Some of you will even have that as a text note in your Bible. The idea is the same regardless. Daniel Carroll, again, is helpful here. He explains the expression saying, his anger, though fierce, will not be given full reign. His is not the wrath of a human who might seek revenge out of an extreme sense of betrayal. No, no. Yahweh is God. Judgment is not about exacting retribution. Its ultimate aims are purification and restoration. So, Unlike in the case of Adma and Zeboim, cities completely destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah in a previous time of judgment, in the case of Israel, because of the familial affection that God has for him, the punishment will not be fatal in nature. It will be firm, but it will not be fatal. Now, this is surprising, actually. According to Deuteronomy 21.18, a rebellious son, a son like Israel, Was supposed to be stoned by the whole community. Do you remember that? It it says, this is Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, a son like God has, like Israel, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elder's of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, closed quote. So a rebellious son who cannot be taught and who cannot be disciplined, who is nothing but a drunk and who is completely lacking in self-control, that kind of son, according to the Bible, has to be put down for the good of society. That kind of son is beyond all hope and remedy. So we expect a sentence of death here for Israel. But we don't get it. Apparently, no son, no rebel, is beyond the reach of God. And here we learn that all of these very human metaphors cannot be pushed too far. God is not merely like a husband. God is not exactly like a father. He is like those things, but also more than those things. David Allen Hubbard says here, the ultimate difference between God and a man is utterly basic to a biblical understanding of reality, whether in reference to creation, providence, sovereignty, or salvation, Close quote. As Jesus says in the Gospels, what is impossible with man is possible with God, Luke eighteen twenty seven. Therefore, because he has resources and abilities we don't have, he can afford to be merciful in ways we do not expect. Thanks be to God. Verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. So, this discipline will ultimately be restorative. God will roar. That's a reminder that this discipline is going to be firm, it's serious business. God will roar. And his children, like frightened baby cubs, will come trembling and will fall back in line behind him. God knows how to scare the sin right out of us. That's what he's saying here. Now, verse 12 probably doesn't belong in chapter 11. Most commentators disagree with the traditional chapter division here, meaning they understand verse 11 as the proper conclusion to this section and verse 12 as the proper beginning of the next section. So we'll read it again when we deal with chapter 12 in our next episode. Here then we'll keep our attention on the main marvel of the text. This picture of God as fierce in his antagonism towards sin and yet faithful in his love and commitment to his people. How will those two things go together? How how will those realities be reconciled? D.A. Carson says helpfully here, indeed. Within the larger canonical framework, the fact that God is God and not a mere mortal, the fact that both his wrath and his love must be satisfied, means that wrath and love will rush forward together until they meet in the cross. The cross of the man who was called out of Egypt by God to be the perfect son, the perfect antitype of Israel. Closed quote. Those things do go together. They are reconciled in the life and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. Hallelujah. What a story. What a Savior. What a Bible. What a gospel. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at www.endoftheword.ca. If you want to connect on Facebook with other folks who read the Bible, uh, you can use Facebook to do that. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. It'd be great to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow right here for another episode of Into the Word.